There have been periods in our evolution in which we needed to eat plants. Some plants can be really problematic because they have plant toxins. The messaging here is not plants are horrible for you to ever eat another plant again. It's understand that meat is incredibly valuable. Don't fear it. In vegans and vegetarians, there's a conscious aversion to those foods. But in other regions of the brain that are less influenced by our cognitive bias, there is still a positive response to meat. Carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. If you want to keep some in your diet, that's amazing too. The point is just to help people understand a higher quality of life. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. All right, so I am going to start this episode with a disclaimer. Paul and I got into some great conversation, some great discussion in today's episode. I promise, guys, we're friends. <laughs> um, so before anybody freaks out about some of the, quote, arguments we had, we're totally friends. We were actually laughing about it afterwards, about how things get a little feisty on the podcast, because we did debate some things in my first conversation with him. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But yes, disclaimer, I adore Paul, just so you know, before anybody freaks out on me. That said, I did say in our discussion that I would put some links to some of the research surrounding the protective mechanisms of things like lectins in meat and dairy, as well as the proteins in egg whites. I do have those. They are in the show notes. So if you'd like to dive deeper into all of that, it's really fascinating. Definitely check it out. In the episode, I talked about how I had read that these compounds in dairy were to discourage other animals from eating the dairy. I'll put a link to the article that talked about that. I couldn't actually find any scientific research behind that, but I did find a whole new wealth of information that I wasn't even thinking about, and that is the protective compounds in meat and dairy to actually ward off things like bacteria, viruses, stuff like that. So very, very fascinating. Definitely check out the show notes. Speaking of, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash carnivore code. Those show notes will have a full transcript of the entire episode. And if you are interested in the carnivore diet, I've had some other episodes on the topic. Like I said, I had Paul on before. I had Dr. Sean Baker. So definitely check out those episodes. There will be a giveaway for this episode. I give away really awesome things. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you or any thoughts that you have about our conversation on the pinned post at the top of the group to enter to win something I love. Speaking of Facebook groups, exciting announcement. I started a new Facebook group. I know it's crazy, but it's a very specific topic. It's not like a whole nother biohacking group. It's for those users of the Lumen device. I interviewed the founder of Lumen on this show. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hi friends. Welcome back to the show. Super duper excited about the conversation I'm about to have. It's about a topic that you guys know I'm obsessed with. I've actually had two prior episodes on this topic, and that is the controversial carnivore diet. I'm back with a repeat guest. That's how you know that they're a good one when they when they come back on the show. I am here with Dr. Paul Saladino. 
listeners, I actually had him on, I think it was, it was way in the beginning. I think it was like the third episode of this show. We did an episode on the carnivore diet. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. I also had Sean Baker on the show as well. So I'll put a link to that as well. So if people want to get up to speed on the carnivore diet, because Paul, I was thinking rather than just, you know, recap everything we talked about before. We can definitely, you know, dive into what the carnivore diet is and all of the things, but I was thinking maybe for this episode we could just really go into all the tangents and rabbit holes and the, the new things that you're really interested in in the carnivore diet. You are releasing when this comes out, it will have just been released. That's The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet, which I recently read. I'd love to talk about some of the the things that really stuck with me from that book. So I was just wondering if you're down for like a kind of random carnivore episode. Let's do it. Rabbit holes, away we go. Love it. Okay. So listeners, definitely listen to the first episode I did with Paul so that you can get, if you're not familiar with carnivore, get a, a pretty good idea. But that said, so just a little bit of information for listeners. So Dr. Saladino, he is board certified as a physician, nutrition specialist, and in psychiatry. He completed his residency at the University of Washington. He also has pretty much like the coolest history ever of like all the things you've done in life with traveling and just pretty awesomeness. But would you like to tell listeners a little bit about how you came to carnivore personally, your personal experience, and then ultimately what you found, you know, the science of it and then practicing it with patients? Absolutely. Yeah. So I went to college in Virginia right after high school at William & Mary, and I studied chemistry and biology And I thought I was going to go straight to medical school, but I got a little burned out. And so I had a six-year period after college where I just traveled around the world and climbed mountains and through hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and was a ski bum in amazing places like Jackson Hole and Alta, Utah. Now, my dad is a doctor. My mom's a nurse. I've always been fascinated by the root cause of illness. I've just never really wanted to accept the mainstream medical narrative that we should treat diseases with medications that are only there to ameliorate symptoms. We're just not that good at at understanding the root cause of illness. And in my own life, I've had my own autoimmune issues. I've had eczema and asthma. At times in my life, they were very bad. In college, when I was studying this chemistry and biology, I had really bad eczema. In medical school, I had bad eczema. When I was doing jujitsu, getting a lot of eczema on my knees and elbows. In residency at the University of Washington in Seattle, I had eczema all over my back. And throughout all of this, I was really trying to understand what is causing my autoimmunity. If you go to a dermatologist, they'll give you a cream or a steroid to put onto it. And I just didn't believe that eczema was a failure of the barrier integrity of my skin. I thought, you know, there is something in my diet triggering this. This is an autoimmune issue. And it's not debatable within Western medicine that eczema or psoriasis or so many of these skin conditions are autoimmune. In general, I'm fascinated by autoimmunity across the spectrum of illness, everything from Hashimoto's thyroiditis to Sjogren's to lupus to rheumatoid arthritis to dermatomyositis to conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis and even depression, I believe, is autoimmune in nature. And so understanding what was causing my autoimmunity was bigger question for what might be causing these autoimmune conditions in my patients. I really think of treating humans as a holistic 
challenge as a holistic paradigm. I've never liked the way that mainstream medicine wants to balkanize, wants to silo into specialties and say, you have depression, therefore you're going to see a psychiatrist who only knows how to give you medications that affect the neurotransmitters in your brain. What if depression is actually caused by brain inflammation, which is coming from something in your gut? Then what doctor is supposed to treat it? There's no such thing. And that's where Western medicine fails. So throughout all of my training, I was trying so hard to bridge those gaps and understand how it all fit together. And that's why I don't really think that mainstream specialties work well for most people, certainly in the setting of an acute illness or an absolute catastrophe, like a heart attack or something else like that. We need Western trained physicians to put in stents or to, to splint broken bones or to repair broken hips. Yes. But generally speaking, Western medicine fails to treat chronic illness horribly, diabetes, autoimmunity. These are just really not treated well by our system because we don't look for the root cause. But I wanted to know what was causing my autoimmune issue. And I knew that as a physician, I wanted to have some insight through that into what might be causing the autoimmune issues, these inflammatory issues that underlie so many of the chronic diseases we see today in, in our world and that cause so much suffering. So I iterated over my diet time and time again. I was a vegan about 13 years ago and lost 25 pounds of muscle mass, not the type of weight you want to lose. I was extremely skinny, had horrible GI issues, lots of gas. I was a terror to be around from an olfactory perspective in any closed space. And it was just a really, it was a really tough time for me. Okay, vegan diet doesn't work. My eczema did not go away. Meat is not causing my eczema. The next thing I tried was a paleolithic diet. I cut out beans and grains and dairy and really became enamored with these ideas of what are our ancestors eating? What is our ancestral blueprint? What are our genetics expecting after 3 million years of human evolution in our environment and our food environment? And are we really giving that to our body? Or is there a real discordance here in 2020? And I believe there is, and there has been for hundreds of years between the way that humans are evolved to eat and the way that we are actually eating. This will come as no surprise to most of your listeners. So I think the ideas around a paleo diet are fascinating, but the traditional paradigm of what a paleo diet is, quote unquote, didn't work for me. I cut out grains and beans and dairy and still had bad eczema. The next step on the ladder is autoimmune paleo. You cut out seeds and nuts and usually nightshade vegetables. Well, that seemed to make it a little better, but I still had eczema and it got really bad at times. And I thought, okay, what is going on here? And when you think about why a paleolithic cuts these foods out, it's because they're both ancestrally inconsistent and because they have plant toxins, digestive enzyme inhibitors, lectins, oxalates, all sorts of chemicals, saponins, things in these plant foods that are just not compatible with human biology. Milk is obviously an animal food and it has proteins, casein, and whey that don't seem to play well with a lot of people's immunology as well. So these immunologic reactions to food are not exclusively limited to plants, but I think that the majority of what harms our gut are plant foods, broadly speaking. So I just kept cutting foods out of my diet. I kept understanding or learning about a new toxin. Oh, these are histamine foods. Oh, there are these salicylates. Oh, there's, there's you know, oxalates, there's phytates. And then I learned about all these other phytoalexins in foods and how they could be damaging my gut or just really causing biochemical or immunologic problems that are triggering my eczema. Eventually, I got to the point where my diet was basically grass-fed meat, berries, avocado, and, and some lettuce, and I still had eczema. I had occasional mushrooms at the time. I thought, all right, I heard Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan talking about his autoimmune issues, his sleep apnea, his sort of inflammatory arthritis conditions, his daughter Michaela, 
And I thought, that sounds crazy. I know that humans need plants, right? We need plants for fiber. We need plants for phytochemicals. And you and I talked a lot about how those are probably myths, at least in my opinion, how they're myths. I write about those myths in my book, The Carnivore Code. We talked a lot about that in the first episode. But at the time, I had a lot of pushback based on my own ideology. I had a lot of conditioning that was saying, you can't get rid of plants. But I was really desperate, or at least very motivated, because my eczema was so bad. So about two years ago, I dove into a carnivore diet. I cut out all the plants from my diet, which may sound extreme, but it resulted in profound improvements in my eczema. It went away completely in two weeks. I've never had a recurrence in the last two years. My overall sort of mood has gotten so much better. That was a just a striking thing that, that I noticed at the beginning of my carnivore diet experience. I didn't think that I had you know, a problem with depression or anxiety. But when I cut plants out, suddenly it was just much easier to exist in the world. I was just more calm, more focused, more emotionally poised. And at that time, which actually mirrors the way that I do a carnivore diet now, I was not in ketosis all the time. It was not even a zero carb carnivore diet. And we can talk about how the diet has evolved over the two years that I've done it. But I was using honey at the beginning. So I cut out all plants, all vegetables, all leaves and seeds and grains and nuts and legumes and roots, all the plant food, even fruit at that time. And I only had some honey in my diet and I was eating animal meat, animal organs like liver and eggs. And I felt so good that I knew there was something else there. And that was the beginning of sort of this large exploration, this grand adventure that I've been on that brings us to this conversation today. I love it so much. As you know, as listeners know, I'm a huge fan of the carnivore diet. I did probably about six months or a year of basically carnivore instead of being meat and honey or meat only. It was like meat and coconut oil. Well, at least it had no fiber and it was very ketogenic in nature. But I still have this haunting question and it's that, okay, so a big fan of the carnivore, like you don't have to really convinced me of the benefits, although I do have questions about potential stressors or issues that could occur. So like if we just look at the human, everything I see to me says omnivore. And if we look at the longest lived populations, I think we see lots of plants and minimum to moderate meat. Again, omnivore. So like everything I see just screams omnivore. And then you talk about in your book about the what is the optimal diet and this riddle of like what is this diet and it's in our DNA. So we still think, well, I guess, yes, that the optimal diet is carnivore and not omnivore. If it's carnivore, why aren't we carnivores? Well, I think there's a lot of semantics wrapped up in that question. So there's a whole part of the book in which I break down the blue zones argument. To say that the longest lived peoples on the earth eat a lot of plants is just factually incorrect. If you look across populations, there are long lived peoples who eat lots of meat and long lived peoples who eat less meat, but there are no populations living on the earth, nor has anyone ever recorded a human civilization that didn't eat any meat. And there are lots of populations that are just as long lived as anyone else on the planet. Perhaps some of the most longevity sort of displaying populations eat tons of meat. The life expectancy in Hong Kong is 86 years, 85.6 years. They eat over a pound and a half of meat per day on average. So to say that the longest lived people on the earth eat moderate amounts of meat and lots of plants, that's just a factual, it's just incorrect. And it kind of is based on this sort of falsehood, this misleading concept of blue zones where Dan Buettner went around and sampled seven regions of the world, Icaria, Sardinia, Loma Linda in California, and then the Nicoya region of Costa Rica and said, look, these, these are places where people live longer than average. 
I'm going to look at their diet and I'm going to say they eat a lot of plants and don't eat a lot of meat. His research is flawed in so many ways. We can talk about Loma Linda, but Nicoya, Costa Rica is only a blue zone, quote unquote, for males. And if you look at Nicoyan males relative to the general population, they live longer than general population of Costa Rica, but they eat more meat and more animal fat than the general population of Costa Rica. So I don't know how Dan Buettner missed this. Icaria and Greece and Sardinia and Italy are well known for their their appreciation for meat and their inclusion of large amounts of meat frequently. There's a very well-known dish in Sardinia called Sarda pig. So if that's a plant-heavy culture, I think that, that somebody is, you know, off base here in their reporting, then Loma Linda is perhaps the most striking example of all of this. Loma Linda is a Seventh-day Adventist community in Southern California where the residents are about half vegetarian, maybe 15% vegan, and the rest are omnivore. Or I should say, you know, they're meat eating in addition to their, their, their vegetables and eggs and dairy. And they do live seven years longer than the general California population. But there are other studies in California of California Mormons that show that California Mormons live second, seven years longer than the general population. So Mormons don't shun meat. But what do the Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons have in common? They have in common this notion that they live sort of a, a focused, intentional life. They shun what some might call vices. They shun alcohol, tobacco. They generally have community and family life. And so to say that Seventh-day Adventists live longer because they don't eat a lot of meat is also just a correlation that can't be made and doesn't look factually correct when you compare them to other groups that have similar sort of religious discipline and have similar longevity. If you really dig deeply into Loma Lindens, as I do in the book, they look to be very unhealthy at a biochemical level. You can look at the sperm quality of Loma Linda males, and it's abysmal. And in fact, the people, the Loma Linda males who are vegan have the lowest sperm counts and the lowest degree of hypermotility, which is the, the ability of the sperm to swim of any population they studied within that group. The vegan, the vegetarians are slightly better, but then the omnivores are much better. So those argue, again, completely in the, in the other direction. Your point is well taken about humans being considered omnivorous, but what does an omnivore really mean? What is a carnivore really? You could argue that a wolf or a dog is an omnivore, but a lot of free-living wolves and canines eat mostly meat. Now, one of the very interesting things about humans is that we are evolved to be adaptive. And I think that we are omnivorous, meaning that we can eat plants without dying, and we can do that because there have been periods in our evolution in which we were starving, in which we needed to eat plants. But I think if you look at the way that plants and animals are regarded, both at a nutritional level and on a sort of survival level or an importance level by indigenous groups, it's pretty clear that plants are usually survival foods or fallback foods. In the setting of adequate animal foods, plant foods become a very, very small percentage of the diet of many indigenous groups. But what do we know about our ancestors? What do we know about living in the wild, quote unquote? You're not always going to be successful in your hunt. If you're not always successful in your hunt, it's pretty good to have some backup foods. And that's that's probably a reason, that's a reasonable you know, explanation for the fact that, yeah, we probably ate some plant foods throughout our evolution, but which type of plants did we eat? How did we prepare them? How did we detoxify them? And then what is their place in the hierarchy of value for any indigenous group in our history? And where should they be today? And so the position that I'm advancing in the carnivore code is, hey, look, your ancestors ate some plants, but they didn't do so with sort of the, the appreciation that we are doing today. They didn't see them in the same way we do today. 
If you go into the grocery store or you talk to any health pundit, they're going to tell you that kale or spinach is the superfood. And, and I just think that's ludicrous. If you look at the bioavailability and nutrient density of animal liver or animal muscle meat or any animal organ in relation to spinach or kale, it's not even a question which is more valuable to a human or which is going to promote more vitality long term. As I talk about in the book as well, there's so much debunking to be done about all this false narrative around any type of meat, including red meat or saturated fat being bad for humans. It's all based on faulty epidemiology that goes back to very misleading claims made by people like Ansel Keys, the Seven Countries Study, which is just cherry-picked epidemiology, much like the blue zones are, right? You can, you can collect data to make your hypothesis look plausible, but when it is subjected to academic scrutiny, these things often fall apart because the researchers are just choosing the, the, the places that they want to that fit their hypothesis and excluding the ones that, that don't look so good. So yeah, humans might be considered to be omnivorous. You might be able to feed your cat grains. Your cat is a carnivore. Your cat is not an omnivore. But you can feed your cat grains, and then what happens to your cat? It gets kidney disease. It gets a cancer, right? So I think that one of the things that's so fascinating to me is just look at our pets, right? Now, animals like cats are clearly carnivorous. They're, they're, they're relatives in the natural world, tigers and lions. They don't eat any plant matter. You can give them plant matter, but they're just not going to thrive on it at all. And if that's, a, I think, an interesting thing. Now, our biology is not the same as a cat. We can eat plant foods and not get massively sick immediately. I think dogs are kind of similar to humans. Like, they will eat mostly animal foods. They'll eat some plants in nature if they have to, if they're starving. But look what happens when we give our, our dogs lots of plants today. Anyone that has a dog will know this. And it's kind of a sad fact. They get cancer. They get heart disease. They get, they get cardiomyopathy. And it's because they're eating foods that are evolutionarily inconsistent. Well, look at hunter-gatherer incidents of chronic disease. Look at hunter-gatherer incidents of cancer. It's nothing like ours. We, our dogs and us are like eating the same food and dogs are suffering the same chronic disease fate that humans are. Just because you can feed a dog or a cat something and it doesn't die on the spot, doesn't mean that that food is ideal for that animal. So I'm not necessarily arguing in the carnivore code that everyone should stop eating plants completely. What I am saying is two main premises. Number one, that red meat has been incorrectly vilified for really the last 70 years based on shoddy science and flawed epidemiology. And I present lots of science to counter that. Lots of epidemiology that shows that red meat is not bad for humans, along with lots of interventional trials that clearly demonstrate that red meat is not inflammatory, that it is not harmful for humans, and that so much of what we've been told is just fallacy. The second premise is that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. And the plants are rooted in the ground. They don't want to get eaten. And so in order to survive, they've had to develop these plant toxins, these plants defense chemicals. And every one of us has a different ability to detoxify those. So if someone is not thriving, it may be worth considering which plants we're including in our diet and perhaps changing those or understanding which plants are more toxic or less toxic. This is all the type of stuff that I try and paint throughout the book. Like, hey, your ancestors didn't eat a lot of grains and nuts and seeds. And if they did, they fermented the heck out of them. And the idea of salad is an invention of the last 100 years. There are like indigenous groups do not eat salad. Plant leaves are just not friendly for humans. They're not calorically dense. They're not nutritionally dense. And they create all sorts of GI problems. And so there's a lot of evolutionary inconsistency in terms of what we think of as healthy in 2020 and what is really probably much more healthy for humans and much more evolutionarily consistent in the way we're eating. So it's not to say that we're not omnivorous. 
or that we shouldn't eat, we couldn't eat plants from time to time. It's just that I think we're eating a lot more of the most toxic parts of plants. And a lot of us are eating a lot less of the foods that would have been most prized by our ancestors. So the whole thing has been turned on its head. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, 
and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. Oh my goodness, so much. Okay, so to what you just said, Yes. There's this very misleading idea that's cherry picked and put out there about longevity and plants and all of these things. I just, I wonder if because there is this plant-based vegan agenda often that that's the way it needs to be, that on the flip side, we go to carnivore and we almost do the same thing with veganism, but we do it with carnivore in demonizing plants like the way veganism or vegans or the plant-based society might demonize meat. And the only reason I say that is because I am very much interested in the optimal diet. I know I personally don't respond well to a lot of plants. I'm still just haunted by is carnivore the optimal diet for everybody all the time. And like to what you were saying, I don't know if we can make the same arguments about, well, grains. I... (laughs) grains I'm not a big fan of, but feeding vegetable matter or plant-based matter to an actual complete carnivore cat, if a human's an omnivore, you know, is that the same thing? Well, you use a dog, right? Because a dog isn't, you could say a dog's an omnivore and we see the same thing. Dogs thrive on animal-based diets. I know lots of people with dogs that entirely nose to tail animal-based diets, and those dogs thrive. They don't need anything. Dogs do not need any carbohydrates, though I don't fear carbohydrates. Dogs don't need carbohydrates. Dogs don't need grains. Dogs don't need plant leaves. Dogs don't need kale. Like, you don't need to feed your dog kale. Dogs don't need fiber to poop. Dogs don't need plant fiber to poop. And yeah, dogs and humans are different species, but dogs are widely considered to be omnivores, and they can absolutely eat animal meat and organs with no problem. So that's a better example than a carnivorous cat. But I see what you're saying there. I will say one of the most fascinating things from your book that I like want to tell everybody, it blew my mind. It was the study about showing 
I don't remember the exact details, but it was like showing vegans versus like omnivores, different types of people showing them meat. Like the people who had not had meat for a long time because of like a moral perspective, I think. Like they consciously did not want the meat, but there's some, I don't remember exactly what it was. There's some part of our brain that lights up (laughs) when we want something, but it's not in our conscious awareness. And that part still lit up when they saw the meat blew my mind, blew my mind. Yeah, it's called an ERP or an event related potential. They can put these EEG, you know, probes, they can put these EEG sort of stickers on people's heads, and they'll show people of omnivorous or vegetarian or vegan persuasions, pictures of meat. And you can look at activity in various regions of the brain at at various sort of speeds. And you can look at the way the brain responds to different foods. And exactly as you're saying, in, in omnivores, there's a both a pleasant conscious response to meat and animal foods, and there's a pleasant sort of subconscious or deeper limbic response to animal foods. And in vegans and vegetarians, there's a conscious aversion to those foods, but the in other regions of the brain that are more sort of primitive or that are more that are less influenced by our own self-narrative that are less influenced by our cognitive bias, there is still a positive response to meat. And I, I just think it's such a fascinating study. It's really an incontrovertible argument, in my opinion, that humans are programmed to eat meat at a very basic level. Hi, friends. Okay, plants. As you know, I'm a sensitive butterfly. I'm actually a fan of eating plants. I really like fruit, (laughs) but I react to a lot of plants and I was finding it really, really hard to find any one source for all of the potentially problematic compounds in all of the foods. Like basically FODMAPs, histamines, salicylates, gluten, lectins, oxalates, whether or not something is a nightshade, you had to all individually look it up and it was never in one place and it was really upsetting. So I decided to fix that. I created an app called FoodSense Guide. I use it all the time and I'm so grateful that it just turned out amazing. And I can say that because I obviously didn't like create it. <laughs> My developers and graphic artists and all the people did, but I'm so happy with it. It's a top iTunes app. Also grateful for that. That's also a little bit surreal. I released it a while ago and it continually ranks in the chart for all iTunes food apps. Not saying that to brag, just saying it because I'm honestly in shock and in awe and so grateful. Like, what is life? You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. It reveals the general levels of 11 potentially problematic compounds often found in plants and sometimes meat. Oh, hey, I know. In over 300 foods, you can make your own lists. You can export them to print and share. You can learn about the compounds. It's just the coolest. I do have some really exciting updates for it coming soon, but you can go ahead and get it because those updates are always free. So, you know, don't wait for those. Just just get it now. <laughs> Again, the link for that is melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. All right, now back to the show. I, I hear this criticism or this comment about carnivore versus vegan a lot. I just want to speak to that for a moment. I think they're completely different. If you listen to what I was saying earlier, I'm not dogmatic about this at all. And I, I don't, I kind of bristle at being compared to a vegan because when there are so many vegans that I have been connected with and I become friends with who are now carnivore or have started adding meat back to their diet. And when a vegan proponent like John Venus or Jacqueline on Instagram or any of these people, my friend Elise Parker or Tim Sheaf, who I've interviewed on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health, stop being a vegan. The vegan community literally destroys them. 
they just go at them with so much negativity and they're not happy for their success. They're not happy that they're feeling better. If you've ever seen what happens to a vegan advocate who starts eating meat, it's like they're being burned at the stake. They are literally pilloried. And if somebody like most people I know who eat a mostly carnivore diet still eat some plant foods. And I'm never going to say to them, like, you're a bad person because you're eating plant foods or anything like that. To compare carnivores and vegans is just not an accurate comparison. There's no, there's not, not the same degree of dogma within the carnivore movement, at least not within my framework. If someone is eating plants and thriving, I am happy for them. I'm not going to tell them to change a thing. But what's unique about what I'm saying, I believe, is that there are so many people who are not thriving that don't have the body composition, the sleep, the mood, the libido, so many of these things, the mental clarity that they would like, or they don't have resolution from their autoimmune disease, and they're not finding answers anywhere. And no one is telling them that the plants they're eating might be causing a problem. And that's the important thing, that they know there's another tool. They can eliminate all or some of the plants for a short amount of time or for a long term and be completely healthy that humans don't need plants in their diet to thrive. If you're eating plants in your diet and you're thriving, that's amazing. Reach out to me. I want to study you. I want to be your friend. I want to go work out with you. That's amazing. I'm not going to judge you, but you look at the way a vegan looks at a carnivore or a vegan looks at an ex-vegan who's gone omnivore and they literally throw them to the wolves. Vegans are the most carnivorous, cannibalistic people I've ever met, broadly speaking. Now, I know there are some out there that are very nice and kind, but as a group, I think it's pretty hard to deny that the vegans are eating their own, especially when they when they go away from the dogma. So yes, I think that it, you can paint the picture like carnivore, vegan, it's all just too extreme. And I really bristle at that. I don't think it's fair at all because the messaging is completely different between those and there's much more nuance and acceptance and non-dogmatism, what I'm saying. And the messaging here is not plants are horrible for you, don't ever eat another plant again. It's understand that meat is incredibly valuable. Don't fear it. And understand that some plants can be really problematic for some people. If you want to eliminate all of them or some of them, you absolutely can. You won't have any problems. You'll thrive like so many people are. But if you want to keep some in your diet for color, variety, texture, whatever, that's amazing too. That's great. The point is just to help people understand a higher quality of life. So I just had to say that because I don't really, I don't really appreciate those, those juxtapositions. Well, first of all, I did not mean to prescribe any of those characteristics to you at all. So I apologize if I meant that my, my biggest thing in life is find what works for you and accept everybody. And it drives me crazy when we are judgmental of different dietary choices. I mean, it's just, I can't stand it. I was literally just having an idea of all plants being good and animal products being bad compared to all animal products being good and then all plant products being bad or, you know, toxic in a way, just like that juxtaposition compared to all food on a spectrum of potential nutrition and potential toxicity, like the spectrum of everything. But there's the question of meat, for example, and okay, is there nothing in meat toxic to humans? And is everything in plants toxic to humans? But in meat, I mean, meat still contains lectins, it contains vitamins that in high doses could be toxic to cells. So like what? Vitamin A, iron. I don't think it's ever been demonstrated. I mean, there's, okay, so we need to be really careful. I think you're creating a false dichotomy here. Let me provide some context so you don't have to argue against something I might not actually be arguing. My point in saying this is say there's some compounds in meat that if they were in really, really high 
amounts that we're not going to naturally get from meat that they would exhibit toxicity to our cells. Now let's look at a plant and let's say that has a compound that maybe it just takes a little bit of that compound to exhibit a toxicity, but in that little amount, it takes toxicity. But below that at a minute amount, which might be the amount of that compound that we're getting if we were to have a minimum or moderate amount of plants in our natural diet, in that amount, it doesn't exert toxicity to cells and instead has a beneficial effect. And I know like the the graph is way different because maybe those compounds in plants, it's like a tiny, tiny bit is okay. And then, you know, just a little bit more is too much compared to an animals where like you can really have a lot of it before there's a problem. I just feel like if we just step back for a second, it's like, okay, food, they all contain compounds. What are these compounds doing to our cells? Like, what's happening there. And I I don't even know why we need to have a dialogue where we have to like put it on a spectrum of this food is not toxic and this food is toxic when maybe every food contains stuff in it that if there's too much of it actually will be toxic. And if there's not, it'll be fine. And that spectrum varies wildly. I'm just trying to like step back. It's kind of like the the models of reviewing stress and hormesis and toxicity. And I just feel like we we take one model and we apply it to everything rather than having a more like nuanced perspective. I was reading Simland's new book about stress and he went through all the different models of toxicity and I, and it had like so many epiphanies. I was like, oh my goodness, I feel like we're applying different models to plants versus food. And I can go through those if you want. I think about this so much because I just want to have the optimal diet. That's why I'm, I think the nuance is important. I don't know if there was a question in there. I just want to clarify. Well, I think that if you look at the compounds that are found in animals and the compounds that are found in plants, they they look very biologically different. There are no defense chemicals found in animal foods. So what about lectins? Lectins are just carbohydrate binding proteins that occur in all foods. But if you look at the data, the plant lectins look to be much more problematic for humans because they're from a different sort of species. They're much more phylogenetically different from humans than anyone else. I don't think lectins are necessarily a defense chemical in the way that so many of the phytoalexin chemicals are that are found in plants, but plants actually make defense chemicals. I have a quick question and I hate interrupting. I just have a quick question. Does that apply to dairy and eggs as well, the lectins in those? Would that be an exception? We'll talk about it. So if you look at the way plants are making chemicals, they are making chemicals that are there to defend them from predation. By and large, animals don't do this. There's puffer fish and like poisonous frogs in the Amazon, but a cow, for instance, doesn't have any known chemical in its liver or its flesh that's preventing it from getting eaten. But if you look at a piece of kale or broccoli or a Brussels sprout or the root, like a cassava root, or even a sweet potato, or pick your plant food, whether it's a bean or a grain, they have myriad defense chemicals that are there to prevent animals, fungi, and bacteria from eating them. So insects too. So resveratrol, for instance, is it a plant defense chemical? It's made in response to the botrytis fungus on the surface of grapes and peanuts. Sulforaphane is a plant defense chemical. It's brought into existence when myrosinase and glucoraphanin combine as a broccoli seed or any brassica, leaf, or stem is chewed. Animals, by and large, don't have these chemicals. So you're, you're sort of comparing apples to oranges here, and I think you have to be very careful or you'll get confused, and it might confuse the listener. 
you could drink too much water and die, right? To say that you could get too much vitamin A from liver and have harm is something that's never been demonstrated short of the, the wives' tales about polar bear liver, which are not really substantiable today. You know, yes, iron can be a problem for some people, but it really only has to do with a genetic defect or a genetic polymorphism. The vast majority of the population can eat massive amounts of iron and the gut will just poop it out. It won't absorb it. But for people who have polymorphisms in the HFE gene, which is the gene involved in the reabsorption of iron from the gut associated with hemochromatosis, even moderate amounts of iron can cause overload. So that's not a problem with the iron per se. It's a problem with the genetics and has to do with certain polymorphisms in certain genetic people. But most of the population can eat lots of iron and never have a problem. I've never seen a clinical case of vitamin A overload related to any reasonable amount of animal liver. So to compare that to plant foods, I think doesn't really hold up to academic scrutiny. Now, if you want to talk about lectins specifically, they are carbohydrate binding proteins, and they're not really necessarily produced as defense chemicals, but they do identify plants. They're a little bit of plant or animal molecular signature. And there are lectins in dairy, and there are lectins in egg whites, and there are lectins in meat. And there are also lots of lectins in grains and beans and seeds and other plant foods. And I think that clinically, and also in terms of research, it's been demonstrated time and time again, that the lectins in plant foods, usually the lectins found in beans and grains like peanuts or beans are pretty darn problematic for the gut. They can affect the cells in the gut lining, the goblet cells that produce mucus and allow bacterial populations to overgrow in the gut and lead to leaky gut. Now, you, you bring up a good, a good point here, and I talk about this in the book as well. If there are two types of animal foods that can be problematic to people, it's not because they contain a defense chemical or a toxin. It's because they contain lectins or proteins that are immunologically problematic for some people. In milk, it's casein and whey, and in egg whites, it's usually the egg white albumin. Now, I think what's very interesting about this is that eggs and dairy were foods that our ancestors probably didn't get that much, and I don't think people should emphasize those on a carnivore diet. I give lots of caution regarding this in the book and say, hey, look, if you can do dairy, that's fine, but I think that the majority of us are gonna have some immunologic intolerance to casein and whey, and I would leave it out of most diets. I also recommend that most people leave out egg whites for the same reason, just that overconsumption of those foods that are not really evolutionarily consistent or not programmed for us can cause immunologic problems. But I think the vast majority of people are having most of the problems with plant foods. But if you can tolerate some plant foods, great. But there's a real difference in the way that these compounds are being produced. And we've only scratched the surface in terms of plant compounds. We haven't talked about oxalates. We haven't talked about saponins. We haven't talked about the polyphenols that are phytoalexins. We haven't talked about isothiocyanates. We haven't talked about salicylates. We haven't talked about a lot of other ones. And you were only able to come up with two potential problems with animal foods. And both of them are not really a real problem. So to compare those two, I think just doesn't, doesn't hold up when you think about it. Animal foods are much safer than plant foods. And then if you look at the nutritional quality of these foods, animal foods just absolutely blow plant foods away. There's no equivalent in terms of the bioavailability of animal meat and liver to similar nutrients in plant foods. If you're looking at vitamin B6 or any of the B vitamins or vitamin A or iron, they're so much more bioavailable in animal foods. Furthermore, there are many important nutrients that are essential for human optimal health that occur only in animal foods. They don't occur in plant foods at all. Things like creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, vitamin K2, the full spectrum of vitamin K2, all of the menaquinones and vitamin B12, the list goes on and on and on. So when you really put plant foods and animal foods next to each other, and there's a whole chapter in the book, 
There's no comparison. To say that plant foods and animal foods both contain toxins, that just isn't true. You're not comparing the same things and you're not looking at it accurately. And then to even try and compare the nutritional quality of these foods is, is there's no comparison. Animal foods are much more nutrient dense than plant foods. Having said all of that, like I said earlier, if somebody's eating plant foods and thriving, great. But if somebody's not thriving or struggling with GI issues or autoimmune issues, it's really important to realize that there are lots of toxins in plant foods that could be triggering them. I would say the same thing to someone if they're having GI issues or mood issues or autoimmune issues, and they're still eating egg whites or they're still eating dairy, I would remove those foods as well. But I just haven't seen it, that animal meat and liver and fat, the foods that really I think have served as the centerpiece of human diets for 3 million years, cause problems for really many humans on this planet, if any. I mean, you definitely don't have to convince me of the potential toxicity of plants. I even... <laughs> I'm like so obsessed with it. I created an app a lot of my listeners have called Food Sense Guide, and it compares over 300 foods for 11 different compounds so that people might react to glutamates, oxalates, lectins, histamines, salicylates, gluten, FODMAPs. I mean, it just it goes on and on. Quick thing to what you said. It was my understanding that the lectins in milk were to discourage other animals from drinking the milk and that the proteins in egg whites were to protect the egg yolk. I don't think so. They're not defense chemicals. The, the chemical in, the, again, the chemicals in, I don't know where you read that, but I, I don't think it's true. It's, I think it's an immunologic sort of incompatibility. The proteins in milk are casein and whey, and those are just occurring in all sorts of milk. Humans have casein and whey in their milk, and the protein in egg white is albumin. It's a normal protein that's found. It's not a defense chemical. It's just a chemical that looks a little differently. And I think sometimes the immune system recognizes it differently. So I don't, I'd, I'd be curious where you found that because I don't, I don't believe that to be, uh, I haven't seen any evidence of that. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. 
Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. How 
However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. 
I will do further research and find the article and the, the list of studies and put it in the show notes and send it to you as well. And we can further discuss. But you were speaking about how, you know, there aren't any studies showing cases really of vitamin A toxicity, except for, you know, these people eating polar bears and things like that. I just wonder if a lot of the studies on plant toxicity, I mean, do we have studies showing a person eating a moderate amount of plants containing these compounds, like in cooked form? Like, are we seeing toxicity or are the toxicity studies always in like supplemental form, reduced form, the isolated compound, cell cultures? I feel like maybe the same argument could be made for that as well, or at least for the more benign ones. Like, I mean, tubers, for example, are underground, so they already have less of a need for defense compounds. And then if we cook them, we're denaturing a lot of the additional compounds, something like white rice. Most of the defense compounds are found in the bran. So not that I'm a fan of eating all the white rice, but, you know, we take off the bran and if we well cook it, I mean, goodness, if we put it in the like instant pot, I don't know what defensive compounds will be left in it. So I just, I wonder if like our adaptation as humans to these compounds, like with cooking and things like that might be important. Yeah, I mean, I think that we know that cooking denatures some of the compounds, but not all. Phytates are not denatured by cooking. They are denatured by fermentation. Cooking is not going to degrade glucosinolates, which is a precursors of isothiocyanates, which are a definite plant defense chemical. Cassava is an example of a root that's absolutely freaking toxic. Even if you cook it, you will die with cooked cassava unless you ferment it or prepare it and let all of the hydrocyanic acid evaporate for three days. So there's lots of studies. Saponins are not denatured by pressure cooking or cooking or any of these things. There are many of these compounds that are not denatured with any of those methods. And again, if you pressure cook something, like you're basically creating a mush. How many of the micronutrients, which is the whole reason you're eating it in the first place, are degraded? I mean, if you're talking about calories, we're really mixing a lot of ideas here. If the point of eating food is to give humans calories and micronutrients, in order to detoxify many of these plant foods, you are going to destroy all of the nutrients in them in the first place. You could do that with white rice, you could, or with rice, you could remove the hull and pressure cook it, and you could basically make a dextrose polymer. You know, you could make mush that's a bunch of glucose, which is great, it'll sustain you, but no one is going to say that white rice is going to make someone virile and happy or give them good skin. There's no nutrients left in that food, and you can eat it if you want the carbohydrates, that's great. I personally have not found white rice to be very very nutritive at all or to really improve my health. So we're sort of getting to extremes. I mean, if you absolutely nuclearify a plant food, you could probably degrade a lot of the toxins. But at that point, why are you eating in the first place? You know, what the heck are you doing? You're not going to get any of the micronutrients. And at a basic nutritional adequacy level, you are any human is going to struggle to get all of the nutrients they need unless the majority of their diet is animal foods. That's just a basic equation. That's my concern is that as we introduce more and more plant foods, we are excluding more and more animal foods and the nutrient quality, the nutrient density, the nutrient availability is there's no equivalence between those. I'll challenge any of the listeners to understand where they get their riboflavin from. How do you get enough riboflavin? If you are not eating liver or heart, I would be very surprised if you are even getting close to the RDA for riboflavin in a day. And so many of the nutrients in plant foods like retin, excuse me, like beta carotene are often sold to us as vitamin A equivalents when they are not. It takes over 19,000 units of beta carotene to equal one unit of retinol vitamin A. I think that vitamin A deficiency is rampant in the United States and it's unknown because most people have 
BCMO polymorphisms and can't convert beta carotene into retinol and just are not getting enough vitamin A because they're not eating egg yolks or they're not eating liver if they're sensitive to eggs. And so to equate these or to say like we can detoxify these foods, it's like, yeah, and then you can create mush that has no micronutrients and isn't, you know, isn't, you know, isn't going to promote health in a human. So we're kind of back to square one, begin with the end in mind. What is the point of eating in the first place? It's to give your body enough calories to do, you know, all of the synthesis and just to give your body all the building blocks, the micronutrients. And why would you want to do that in a way that's going to create more toxic damage? Or why would you want to try and do that with foods that are just completely nutrient bereft in order to make them non-toxic for humans? The equation seems to make so much more sense to me that we would want to eat more animal foods and less of the most toxic plant foods to do both of those things. And then we're just going to thrive more as humans. Do you see what I'm saying? The crazy thing is I'm really on the same page about almost all of it. I kind of shudder if I could like see a list of or like a number of how much meat I've eaten because I just feel like it's the most nutrient rich thing. I don't feel complete without it. I eat so much of it. I've got periods to where I was basically just eating meat. I just wonder on the plant side of things, what is that toxicity threshold? And if I have, you know, berries or just, you know, comparing straight carnivore to carnivore plus some plants. And you talk about in your book, there there are five tiers and they have different levels of vegetables and fruits. And listeners, by the way, get the book because there's so much science, so much detail, more than we could ever talk about in this podcast. So I hardcore, you get it ASAP. I know we're running out of time. I have a question for you though. So word on the street. Okay. Because in your history, you talked about how you originally, when you experimented with carnivore, you were like carnivore with honey, and then you went more carnivore. And now word on the street is your, I don't know if you still are, but you brought back honey for a bit. So like carbs, fat, honey, what are your current thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really fascinating. So the first year and a half that I did carnivore, I was just zero carb carnivore. And my athletic performance was fine, but I did have electrolyte issues and I really struggled to maintain electrolytes. I think that ketosis is a natural state for humans. Every morning I'm in ketosis when I wake up, even now, including honey back in my diet. And I think that our our ancestors were in ketosis frequently. I don't think it's a challenging thing for humans or a damaging thing. But I do think that in terms of electrolyte maintenance, humans need more of an insulin signal than you will get from just pure protein and fat. And there are many people out there who appear to be doing just fine on long-term ketogenic diets, but I also think there's a lot of fear of carbohydrates. If you really look at human biochemistry, carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. They just don't. And I've done many podcasts on this. There's plenty of research to show this. There are examples of indigenous hunter-gatherer groups to show this. Carbohydrates do not cause diabetes. I think that the real trigger for the underlying insulin resistance that is at the root of metabolic syndrome and diabetes is evolutionarily inconsistent levels of linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid in our diet today relative to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago. And so this is what's found in vegetable oils and foods like chicken and pork that are fed corn and soy, evolutionarily inconsistent foods. So that's, I think, the real trigger. and. What I found personally was that when I reincorporated carbohydrates back into my diet, first with honey, and then I did a short experiment while I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor from NutriSense, and I had berries and sweet potato and a few other carbohydrates just to see what my glucose would do, that I felt much better. Now, incidentally, the more fiber I ate, the worse I felt, and I didn't like squash. My eczema actually came back for a couple of days when I had squash in my diet, and then I cut it out again, and it went away and hasn't recurred. The berries were pretty benign, but 
weren't really amazing for me. But in the book, as you say, I do give five tiers of a carnivore diet. The first tier is a really a carnivore-ish type diet. And I give some sense of what I think are the least toxic plant foods. And those are fruit. If you look at indigenous cultures, they eat meat and organs and fruit when it's available seasonally. So I think that humans biochemically can do great in ketosis for some amount of time, but eventually our body's like, you know, I could use a little bit more insulin signaling from time to time just to hold on to electrolytes. And so what I have settled on now that works really well for me is I eat honey on most days, twice a day. My blood sugar doesn't go crazy. My fasting blood sugar stays very low. You can see in my continuous glucose monitor readings, which I shared in that podcast, I am not insulin resistant from eating honey. I've done labs. My fasting insulin is less than three micro IU per ml. My C peptide is 0.43 on honey. So I'm actually more insulin sensitive with some honey in my diet. If people are afraid of fructose, I talked about that in a recent podcast at length with my friend Tommy Wood. There's way too much fructophobia out there. There are many isocaloric replacement studies with fructose showing that it doesn't cause weight gain, blood pressure rise, or increase uric acid when it's eaten in reasonable quantities in whole foods. So the carbohydrates piece is very interesting to me. And if ever there were anything to suggest that I'm not dogmatic, this may be one of them because believe me, there are lots in the carnivore community who would say, no, no, sugars aren't good for you. You don't need any carbohydrates. And Basically, I just say to people like, hey, if you're thriving without them, great. I think your body is very well equipped to be in ketosis as much as you want. But if you are getting palpitations or you are getting muscle cramps, your body is asking for carbohydrates so it can hold on to the electrolytes a little better. That's just normal physiology. An insulin spike is not pathologic. A blood sugar bump from 80 to 120 for less than an hour is not pathologic. People wear these continuous glucose monitors and they just want to see their blood sugar flat all day. It's not normal human physiology unless you're fasting. And so there's no problem with that, but there's also no problem with having a, a bump after you eat some carbohydrates if your body is insulin sensitive and able to dispose of that glucose very quickly. And that's what you'll see on my CGM readings that I show in that podcast, that the blood sugar comes back to normal within an hour. There's none of these huge postprandial spikes that people would ex ex expect which really can suggest some degree of insulin resistance. But in other people, when they eat carbohydrates, they get that response. Usually when they're eating processed carbohydrates, that would tell me that their underlying metabolism is broken. In my opinion, that's related to years and years of excess linoleic acid, this 18 carbon omega-6 fatty acid that is not supposed to be that high in our diet. This is lots of vegetable oil. This is lots of corn and soy. This is way too many nuts and seeds in our diet that are breaking our metabolism. If you look at hunter-gatherer groups, like I said, the amount of linoleic acid in their diet is only 2 to 3% of their calories. In 2020, we're probably upwards of 15 or 17% of our calories from the linoleic acid. And these oils have crucial central biochemical signaling roles in our biochemistry. So really, really interesting stuff. And I think people should do what works for them, but understand there's lots of ideas out there that really contradict the notion that carbohydrates are in and of themselves bad for humans. Now, I'm not advocating for big gulps. I'm not advocating for processed sugars. I'm just saying it's okay to eat fruit from time to time if you want to eat some seasonally. If you have some raw organic honey that you want to eat, it's probably very good for you. It's, it's a very healthy food for humans. It's very evolutionarily consistent from time to time. It's totally reasonable to consume that. 
the best blood sugars I ever had and diet I thrived on was high, high protein, low fat, high carbs from fruit. I could not agree more about polyunsaturated fats, omega-6 oils. If I had to pick one thing that I think is probably the most detrimental to our bodies, it would be that. For listeners, I actually interviewed Cyrus and Robbie of Mastering Diabetes. Definitely check out that episode if you're interested in the high carb, low fat implications of fruit and all that stuff. Paul, I know you have to go. I can't let you go without (laughs) asking the last question I always ask. And it's just because I realized how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my goodness. It's just really cool to be able to do this work and to be able to share ideas and tools with people that may that may not be things that are out there widely. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think I think that 2020 is a crazy year, but it's also an interesting time to be alive because we get to have conversations with people who may have different ideas and share ideas. And the ultimate hope is just that we can come to some mutual understanding of truth that will benefit people and help them just really live the best life they they can. We're all on this earth for a blink of an eye. It's a short amount of time. And a lot of people suffer greatly during this time they're on the earth. And I really just hope to be able to be a part of improving that a small bit. And I'm really grateful to get to do that work. Well, thank you, Paul. You're really doing that. Listeners, I cannot recommend enough that you get the carnivore code ASAP. I know we just scratched the surface. It goes so deep into all of this. Like, just get it. Just get it. Read it now. Also, check out Paul's podcast. Any other links you want to throw out there? Well, I also want to let people know one of the things we didn't really talk about too much in this podcast was the importance of organ meat. Oh, I love those. Yeah. And so I'm super excited about this passion project that I've recently launched, which is Heart and Soil. It's a company that's getting people desiccated organ supplements. So liver and spleen and pancreas and kidney. If you had to pick to start with for listeners, what would you recommend? So right now we've launched with two products. We have bone marrow and liver, which I think is amazing because there's no other bone marrow products on the market that allow that don't have flow agents like rice flour. And then the other one is beef organs. If I had to choose one, I would start with a beef organ supplement that we have. It's liver, heart, kidney, spleen, and pancreas. And if you get, I think getting both would be better because then you'll get some bone marrow as well. But if you're not getting organs in your diet, no matter what you're eating, whether it's omnivore, carnivore, keto, whatever, there's a lot of unique nutrients in these foods that, like I said, are not found other places. Earlier when I asked where most of the listeners were getting their riboflavin, you have to remember it's really only found in, in bioavailable, reasonable quantities in heart and liver. And so we, it's just a great idea for people to take these organs. Now, Basically, what I tell people is don't take the supplements that I'm making, eat the real organ. But if you can eat the real organ or you don't want to eat the real organ, I hope that they'll be valuable for some people. So check us out at at heartandsoilsupplements.com. That is so incredible and so exciting. I will have to check it out right now. And for listeners, you can get 10% off heart and soil supplements with the coupon code Melanie Avalon. So thank you so much, Paul, for that. And the book is out now. You can go to the Carnivore Code Book for the book. And my website is CarnivoreMD. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. I could have talked to you for another five hours. I know you have to go. Maybe we can do a part three in the future. I love that. Have a great day, Melanie. Thanks so much for having me on. Bye, Paul. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.